Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knows. My name is Chris and I will be your reading partner for the day. Or however long this takes. Just a couple, probably take less than 30 minutes. But you've reached my podcast. Uh, All I do is read. Sometimes I put a little thing at the end. Who knows? Um, Some of the things I read are interesting. Some are not so interesting. Some are just there to... uh, get better at reading uh most of the time we're just learning together because a lot of the things most of the things that i'm reading um i'm reading for the first time to you there are no edits in these podcasts um i just kind of wanted to uh i I like to read and i like to read out loud and um I, i like to think that i'm pretty good at it there's a few people that think i'm good at it too um and yes, my kids count. But for now, we are going to get back into a book that I started um, uh, kind of towards the beginning of this episode list. Um, we are reading Ethics for the New Millennium by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Uh, we have read chapter one already. So if you want to read that before you listen to this, if you want to listen to that one before you listen to this one, go ahead. Um and then we will uh, get right back into, you can come back and listen to this episode after that. Uh, the first chapter is pretty cool. Um, we're going to go right into the second chapter of Ethics for the New Millennium by Dalai Lama. And we're in chapter two, No Magic, No Mystery. In calling for a spiritual revolution, am I advocating a religious solution to our problems after all? No. As someone nearing 70 years of age at the time of writing, I have accumulated enough experience to be completely confident that the teachings of the Buddha are both relevant and useful to humanity. 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 If a person puts them into practice, it is certain that not only they, but others too, will benefit. My meetings with many different sorts of people the world over have, however... Help me realize that there are other faiths and other cultures, no less capable than mine, of enabling individuals to lead constructive and satisfying lives. What is more, I have come to the conclusion that whether or not a person is a religious believer does not matter much. Far more important is that they be a good human being. I say this in acknowledgement of the fact that through a majority of the Earth's nearly 6 billion human beings may claim allegiance to that though... Sorry, get a little... All right. Though a majority of the Earth's nearly 6 billion human beings may claim allegiance to one faith, tradition, or another, the influence of religion on people's lives is generally marginal, especially in the development in, de- in the developed world. It is doubtful whether globally even a billion are what I would call dedicated religious practitioners. That is to say, people who try on a daily basis faithfully to follow the principles and precepts of their faith. The rest remain, in this sense, non-practicing. Those who are dedicated practitioners, meanwhile, follow a multiplicity of religious paths. From this, it becomes clear that that given our diversity, no single religion satisfies all humanity. We may also conclude that we we humans can live quite well without recourse to religious faith. These may seem unusual statements coming as they do from a religious figure. I am, however, Tibetan before I am a Dalai Lama. And I am human before I am Tibetan. So while as Dalai Lama I have special responsibility to Tibetans, and as a monk I have a special responsibility toward furthering inner religious harmony, 
As a human being, I have a much larger responsibility toward the whole human family, which indeed we all have. And since the majority does not practice religion, I am concerned to try to find a way to serve all humanity without appealing to religious faith. Actually, I believe that if we consider the world's major religions from the widest perspective, we find that they are all Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, and the others directed toward helping human beings achieve lasting happiness. And each of them is, in my opinion, capable of facilitating this. Under such circumstances, a variety of religions, each of which promotes the same basic values after all, is both desirable is both desirable and useful. Not that I always felt like this. When I was younger and living in Tibet, I believed in my heart that Buddhism was the best way. I told myself it would be marvelous if everyone converted, yet this was due to ignorance. We Tibetans had, of course, heard of other religions, but what little we knew about them came from Tibetan translations of secondary Buddhist sources. Naturally, these focused on those aspects of the other religions, which are more open to debate from a Buddhist perspective. This was not because their Buddhist authors wished deliberately to caricature all their opponents. Rather, it reflected the fact that they had no need to address all those aspects with which they had no argument, since in India, where they wrote, the works they were discussing were valuable in their entirety. Unfortunately, this was not the case in Tibet, where there were no translations of these other scriptures available. As I grew up, I was gradually able to learn more about the other world religions, especially after going into exile. I began to meet people who, having dedicated their entire lives to different faiths, some through prayer and meditation, others through actively serving others, had acquired a profound experience of their particular tradition. Such personal exchanges helped me recognize the enormous value of each of the major faith traditions and led me to respect them deeply. For me, Buddhism remains the most precious path. It corresponds best with my personality, but that does not mean I believe it to be the best religion for everyone any more than I believe it necessary for everyone to be a religious believer. Of course, both as a Tibetan and as a monk, I have been brought up according to and educated in the principles, the precepts, and the practice of Buddhism. I cannot therefore deny that my whole thinking is shaped by, understand, by my understanding of what it means to be a follower of the Buddha. However, my concern in this book is to try to reach beyond the formal boundaries of my faith. I want to show that there are indeed some universal ethical principles which, help, which could help everyone to achieve the happiness we all aspire to. Some people may feel that, this is, that in this I am attempting to propagate Buddhism by stealth, but while it is difficult to, for me to con for me conclusively to refute the claim, that is not the case. Actually, I believe there is an important distinction to be made between religion and spirituality. Religion, I take to be concerned with faith in the claims to salvation of one faith tradition or another, an aspect of which is acceptance of some form of metaphysical or supernatural reality, including perhaps an idea of heaven or nirvana. Connected with this are religious teachings or dogma, ritual, prayer, and so on. Spiritual, spirituality I take to be concerned with those qualities of the human spirit, such as love and compassion, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, contentment, a sense of responsibility, a sense of harmony, which, brings hap which bring happiness to both self and others. While ritual and prayer, along with the questions of nirvana and salvation, are directly connected to religious faith, these inner qualities need not be, however. There is thus no reason why the individual should not develop them, even to a high degree, without recourse to any religious or metaphysical belief system. This is why I sometimes say that religion is something we can perhaps do without. 
What we cannot do without are these basic spiritual qualities. Those who practice religion would, of course, be right to say that such qualities or virtues are fruits of genuine religious endeavor, that religion therefore has everything to do with developing them and with what may be called spiritual practice. But let us be clear on this point. Religious faith demands spiritual practice. Yet it seems there is much confusion, as often among religious believers or among non-believers, concerning what this actually consists in. The unifying characteristic of the qualities I have described as spiritual may be said to be some level of concern for others' well-being. Maybe said to be some level of concern for others' well-being. In Tibetan, we speak of Shen Pen Kyai Sem, meaning the thought to be of help to others. And when we think about them, we see that each of the qualities noted is defined by an implicit concern for others' well-being. Moreover, the one who is compassionate, loving, patient, tolerant, forgiving, and so on, to some extent, recognizes the potential impact of their actions on others and orders their conduct accordingly. Thus, spiritual practice, according to this description, involves, on the one hand, acting out of concern for others' well-being. On the other, it entails transforming ourselves so that we become more readily disposed to do so. To speak, of spirit, to speak of spiritual practice in any terms other than these is meaningless. My call for a spiritual revolution is thus not a call for a religious re revolution, nor is it a reference to a way of life that is somehow otherworldly, still less to something magical or mysterious. Rather, it is a call for a radical reorientation away from our habitual preoccupation with self. It is a call to turn toward the wider community of beings with whom we are connected. And for conduct, which recognizes others' interests alongside our own. Here the reader may object that while transformation of character that such a reorientation implies is certainly desirable, and while it is good that people develop compassion and love, a revolution of spirit is hardly adequate to solve the, ver the variety and magnitude of problems we face in the modern world. Furthermore, it could be argued that problems arising from, for example, violence in the home, addiction to drugs and alcohol, family breakup, and so on, are better understood and tackled on their own terms. Nevertheless, given that they could each certainly be solved through people being more loving and compassionate toward one another, however improbable this may be, they can also be characterized as spiritual problems susceptible to a spiritual revolution. This is not to say that we all need that all we need to do is cultivate spiritual values and these problems will automatically disappear. On the contrary, each of them needs a specific solution, but we find that when the spiritual dimension is neglected, we have no hope of achieving a lasting solution. Why is this? Bad news is a fact of life. Each time we pick up a newspaper or turn on the television or radio, we are confronted with sad tidings. Not a day goes by, but somewhere in the world, something happens that everyone agrees is unfortunate. No matter where we are from or what our philosophy of life, to a greater or lesser extent, we are all sorry to hear of other suffering. These events can be divided into two broad categories. Those which have principally natural causes, earthquakes, drought, floods, and the like, and those of which are human origin. Wars, crime, violence of every sort, corruption, poverty, deception, fraud, and social and and social, political, and economic injustice are each the consequence of negative human behavior. And who is responsible for such behavior? We are. From, royal, from royalty, presidents, prime ministers, and politicians, through administrators, scientists, doctors, lawyers, academics, students, priests, nuns, and monks, such as myself, to industrialists, artists, shopkeepers, technicians, peace workers, manual laborers, 
laborers, and those without work, there's not a single class or sector of society which does not contribute to our daily diet of unhappy news. Fortunately, unlike natural disasters, which we can do little or nothing about, these human problems, because they are all essentially ethical problems, can be overcome. The fact that there are so many people, again, from every sector and every level of society, working to do so is a reflection of this intuition. There are those who join political parties to fight for a fair constitution, those who become lawyers to fight for justice, those who join aid organizations to fight poverty, those who care both on a professional and on a voluntary basis for the victims of harm. Indeed, we are all, according to our own understanding and in our own way, trying to make the world, or at least our bit of it, a better place for us to live in. Unfortunately, we find that no matter how sophisticated and well-administered our legal systems, and no matter how advanced our methods of external control by themselves, these cannot eradicate wrongdoing. Observe that nowadays our police forces have at their disposal technology that could barely have been imagined 50 years ago. They have methods of surveillance which enable them to see what formerly was hidden. They have DNA matching, forensic laboratories, sniffer dogs, and of course, highly trained personnel. Yet criminal methods are correspondingly advanced so that really we are no better off. Where ethical restraint is lacking, there could be no hope of overcoming problems like those of rising crime. In fact, without such inner discipline, excuse me, we find that the very means we use to solve them becomes a source of difficulty itself. The increasing sophistication of criminal and police methods is a vicious and mutually reinforcing cycle. What then is the relationship between spirituality and ethical practice? Since love and compassion and similar qualities all by definition presume some level of concern for others' well-being, they presume ethical restraint. We cannot be loving and compassionate unless at the same time we curb our own harmful impulses and desires. As to the foundations of ethical practice itself, it might be supposed that here at least I advocate a religious approach. Certainly, each of the major religious traditions has a well-developed ethical system. However, the difficulty with trying our understanding of right and wrong to religion is what we must then ask, which religion? Which articulates the most complete, and most, the most accessible, the most acceptable system? The arguments would never stop. Moreover, to do so would be to ignore the fact that many who reject religion do so out of convictions sincerely held, not merely because they are unconcerned with the deeper questions of human existence. We cannot suppose that such people are without a sense of right and wrong or of what is morally appropriate just because some who are anti-religion are immoral. Besides, religious belief is no guarantee of moral integrity. Looking at the history of our species, we see that among the major troublemakers, those who visited violence, brutality, and destruction on their fellow human beings, there have been many who profess religious faith, often loudly. Religion can help us establish basic ethical principles, yet we can still talk about ethics and morality without having recourse to religion. Again, it could be objected that if we do not accept religion as the source of ethics, we must allow that people's understand we must allow that people's understanding of what is good and right, of what is wrong and bad, of what is morally appropriate and what is not, of what constitutes a positive act and what a negative act must vary must vary according to circumstances and even from person to person. But here let me say that no one should suppose it could ever be possible to devise a set of rules or laws to provide us with the answer to every ethical dilemma. Even if we were to accept religion as the basis of morality, such a formulaic approach could never hope to capture the richness and diversity of human experience. It would also give grounds for arguing that 
we are responsible only to the letter of those laws rather than for our actions. This is not to say that it is useless to attempt to construe principles which can be understood as morally binding. On the contrary, if we are to have any hope of solving our problems, it is essential that we find a way to do so. We must have some means of educating between them. For example, terrorism as a means to political reform and Mahatma Gandhi's principles of peaceful resistance, we must be able to show that violence towards others is wrong, yet we must find some way of doing so which avoids the extremes of crude absolutism on the one hand and of trivial relativism on the other. My own view, which does not rely solely on religious faith or even on an original idea, but rather on ordinary common sense, is that establishing binding ethical principles is possible when we take as our starting point, the observation that we all desire happiness and wish to avoid suffering. We have no means of discriminating between right and wrong if we do not take into account others' feelings, others' suffering. For this reason, and also because, as we shall see, the notion of absolute truth is difficult to sustain outside the context of religion. Ethical conduct, conduct is not something we engage in because it is somehow right in itself. Moreover, if it is correct that the desire to be happy and avoid suffering is a natural disposition shared by all, it follows that each individual has a right to pursue this goal. Accordingly, I suggest that one of the things which determines whether an act is ethical or not is its effects on others' experience or expectation of happiness. An act which harm, harms or does violence to this is potentially an unethical act. I say potentially because all though the consequences of our actions are important, there are other factors to consider, including both the question of intent, intent and the nature of the act itself. We can all think of things which we have all done that have upset others, despite the fact that it was by no means our intention to do so. Similarly, it is not is it also not hard to think of acts which, though they may appear somewhat forceful and aggressive and likely to cause hurt, could yet contribute to others' happiness in the long run. Disciplining children will often fall into this category. On the other hand, the fact that our actions may appear to be gentle does not mean that they are positive or ethical if our intentions are selfish. On the contrary, if, for example, our intention is to mislead, then to pretend kindness is a most unfortunate deed. Though force may not be involved, such an act is certainly violent. It does violence not only insofar as the end is harmful to the other, but also in that injury in that it injures that person's trust and expectation of truth. Again, it is not difficult to imagine a case where, individual, where an individual may suppose their actions to be well-intended and directed toward the greater good of others, but where they are all, in reality, totally immoral. Here we might think of a soldier who carries out orders summarily, summarily to execute, execute civilian prisoners. Believing the cause to be a just one, the soldier may suppose such actions are directed toward the greater good of humanity. Yet according to the principle of nonviolence I have put forward, killing is by definition an unethical act. Carrying out such orders would thus be gravely negative conduct. In other words, the content of our actions is also important in determining whether they are ethical or not, since certain acts are negative by definition. The factor which is perhaps most important of all in determining the ethical nature of an act is neither its content nor its consequence, however. In fact, since only rarely are the fruits of our actions directly attributable to us alone, whether the helmsman is able to bring his boat to safety in a storm depends not just on his actions. Consequence could conceivably be the least important factor. 
A Tibetan, the term for what is considered to be of the greatest significance in determining the ethical value of a given action, is the individual's kung long. Translated literally, the part participle kun means thoroughly or form of the form the depths, and long wa denotes the act of causing something to stand up, to arise, or awaken. But in the sense in which it is used here, kung long is understood as what, in a sense, drives or inspires our actions, both those we intend directly and those which are, in a sense, involuntarily. It therefore denotes the individual's overall state of heart and mind. When this is wholesome, it follows that our actions themselves will be ethically wholesome. From this description, it is clear that, it's diff that it is difficult to translate Kun Long succinctly. Generally, it is rendered simply as motivation, but this clearly does not capture the full range of meaning. The word disposition, although it comes quite close, lacks the active sense of the Tibetan. On the other hand, the to use the phrase overall state of heart and mind seems unnecessarily long. Arguably, it could be abbreviated to mind state, but this would ignore the wider meaning of mind as it is used in Tibetan. The word for mind, lo, includes the ideas of consciousness or awareness alongside those of feeling and emotion. This reflects an understanding that emotions and thoughts cannot ultimately be separated. Even the perception of, of a quality like color is held to carry within it a, an effective dimension. Nor is there an idea of pure sensation without any accompanying not cognitive event. The inference is rather that we can identify different types of emotion. There are those which are primarily, primarily instinctual, such as revulsion at the sight of blood, and there are those which have a more developed rational component, such as fear of poverty. The, leader, the reader is asked to remember this point whenever I speak of mind, of motivation, of disposition, or of states of mind. This is so that the individual's overall state of heart and mind or motivation in the moment of action is generally speaking. The key to determining its ethical content is easily understood when we consider how our actions are affected when we, gripped, when we are gripped with powerful negative thoughts and emotions such as hatred and anger. In that moment, our mind, low, and heart are in turmoil. Not only does this cause us to lose our sensation of proportion and perspective, but we also lose sight of the likely impact of our actions on others. Indeed, we can become so distracted that we ignore the question of others and of their right to happiness altogether. Our actions under such circumstances, that is to say our deeds, words, thoughts, omissions, and desires, will almost certainly be injur injurious of others' happiness. And this, in spite of what our long-term intentions toward others may be, or whether our actions are consciously intended or not, consider a situation where we become embroiled in an argument with a family member. How we deal with the charged atmosphere which develops will depend to a large extent on what underlies our actions at the moment. In other words, our Kung Long the less calm we are, the more likely we are to react negatively with harsh words, and the more certain we are to say or do things which later we regret bitterly, even though we feel deeply for that person. Or imagine a situation where we inconvenience another in some small way, perhaps by bumping into them accidentally while walking along, and they shout at us for being careless. We are much more likely to shrug this off if our disposition, if, if our disposition Kung Long is wholesome, if our hearts are sufficed with compassion, than if we are under the sway of negative emotions. When the driving force of our actions is wholesome, our actions will tend automatically to contribute to others' well-being. They will thus automatically be ethical. Further, the more this is our habitual state, the less likely we are to react badly when provoked. 
And even when we do lose our temper, any outburst will be free of any sense of malice or hatred. In my view, then, the aim of spiritual and therefore ethical practices is to transform and perfect the individual's kun lung. This is how we become better human beings. We find that the more we succeed in transforming our hearts and minds through cultivating spiritual qualities, the better we, will, the better able we will be to cope with adversity, and the greater the likelihood that our actions will be ethically wholesome. So if I may be permitted to give my own case in, as an example, this understanding of ethics means that in striving continuously to cult cultivate a positive or wholesome mind state, I try to be of the greatest service to others that I can be. By making sure in addition to this that the content of my actions is, so far as I am able to make them, similarly positive, I reduce my chances of acting unethically. How effective is this? How effective this strategy is, that is to say, what the consequences are in terms of others' well-being, either in the short term or the long term, there is no way to tell. But provided my efforts are continual and, I, and provided I pay attention, no matter what happens, I should never have cause for regret. At least I know I have done my best. My description in this chapter of the relationship between ethics and spirituality does not address the question of how we are to resolve ethical dilemmas. We will come to that later. Rather, I have been concerned to outline an approach to ethics which, by relating ethical discourse to the basic human experience of happiness and suffering, avoids the problems which arise when we ground ethics in religion. The reality is that the majority of people today are unpersuaded of the need for religion. Moreover, there may be contact, conduct which is acceptable to one religious tradition but not to another. As to what I meant by the term spiritual revolution, I trust that I have made it clear that a spiritual revolution entails an ethical revolution. And that's it. Chapter two. Pretty good stuff. Um, pretty, uh, pretty good stuff. So, yeah, that was chapter two of the uh, ethics for the new millennium. Uh, not sure when we'll get to chapter three, but we'll see. Um, I'm really just trying to... Uh, get some content out there for you guys to uh let you listen when you can I'm not sure um how often i'll be able to do this but i'm going to do it as often as i can um sometimes i'll be up late at night and i'll read but uh if you like this go ahead and share it um to somebody who you think might like it um last night i saw a huge spike in listener um, and listeners, which is cool. Uh, give me a little, uh, pump me up a little bit. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Um, and yeah. So if you want to hear me read things, go ahead and, uh, save my podcast and I'll, uh, keep reading to you guys. Thanks for listening. Okay. Bye.